be and what it will bring into your life. And, and so she was given this assignment. Now, she, um, my daughter has a tendency to procrastinate, and even at second grade she was that way. And she uh, came to me and she said, I just can't think of anything. My mind just isn't working. I can't think. And so she'd sit there in front of the paper and do nothing and, and complain. So I, I told her, I said, well, you just need some motivation. I said, let me ask you this. I said, now, people pay money for books. They pay money for uh, magazine articles, things like that. What if I were to pay you? Um, we're not going to do this, but this one time. I said, but I'm, I will pay you to do this paper. I said, what do you think a paper like this would be worth? Now, she's shocked. You know, she, all she sees is dollar signs in front of her. And so she begins to think. She says, well, I think $10. Now, she's second grade. You know, $10 would be worth uh, my paper. I said, well, that's a lot of money for a second grader. So we haggled back and forth and negotiated, and I got her down to $2.75. And so we agreed on $2.75. And so I told her, I said, if you write this paper and get it in on time, I said, I will pay you $2.75. So she was all excited. And she wrote the paper. I'm going to read it to you in a minute. And I, I told her when it was done, I said, now this just proves that you can do the paper and that your little mind will work even when you think that it won't. You just need some motivation. Now, this time the motivation was money. I said, next time it needs to be to just to make a good grade and do what you're supposed to do, but you need to get on it early and get it done. So here's the paper. Uh, I guess for a second grader it's worth $2.75, but, but we'll see. Here's, the, here's what she says. She said, when I get bigger, I'll be able to do lots of things, like get to stay out late with my boyfriend. I'll get married. I'll get a car, in parentheses, which is a Corvette, I'll go to bed late. I'll have a good old time. I'll chew a big piece of gum. That was important to her because she had caps on her teeth. She couldn't chew gum. But uh, she said, I will put on makeup. And then again, in parentheses, lots of it. I'll be cool, spelled C-O-L-L. I'll have fun. I'll be loud. I'll be wild. And I'll be nice. I'll stay out until midnight and drive my own car. A car was a big deal to her for some reason. I don't know what it was. I'll have a party every night. But right now I have to go to school because mom and dad said I'm not bigger yet. <laughs> so <laughs> Now, you know, I read through that and I think to myself, now this little gal, it's, she's in the second grade, had dreams of her own. I think we all do. At every point in our life we have dreams. We have things that we look forward to. Now, I can tell you, that she realized that she wasn't young enough to experience her dreams, and she understood that for right now at least, she was going to have to trust her mother and father and obey them because that was the best thing for her right now, but it didn't stop her from dreaming. It didn't stop her from thinking out loud. Now, I can tell you that a lot of her dreams didn't come true or haven't yet. She's not married. She doesn't have a Corvette. She's not wild, and she's an, an ER nurse, so I know she doesn't stay out late. She she has to, you know, go to bed early and so forth. But uh, a lot of things just haven't come true. And for all of us, I think that that's the case. There are things in our lives that we dream of, things that we want, things that we imagine, things that we look forward to someday. But in all honesty, those things haven't come true yet. You know, we dream of an education, where we're going to go to school. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, I was talking to Garrett sitting here on the front row ignoring me. 
this morning. <laughs> and um, Garrett's got how many offers? Five scholarship offers for football already. He's be a, he'll be a junior next year. I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm trying to get him to go to Notre Dame, but I'm still working on him. But at any rate, you know, we all dream of where we might land as far as a career goes, who we're going to marry. I think we all look forward to someday having financial security and not having to worry about money and being able to travel and do things that we want to do. We all want to have peace of mind. I mean, goodness gracious, we all want to be happy. We all look at our spouse and we think, you know, I want to grow old with this person. You know, this is who I want to spend the rest of my life with. Sometimes that doesn't occur either. We all want children who are going to grow up and love Jesus. But you know that doesn't happen all the time either. All of us have at times experienced unanswered prayer. Things that we have taken to the Lord and things that we want God to do for us. And and it, it hasn't happened. And so we're, our lives are filled with dreams that never came to fruition and prayers that were never really answered. And so the question is, you know, as you come here this today and t- think about this, is who are you going to blame? Who are you going to blame when those things occur? So sometimes we blame our parents. Uh, parents are always easy, easy targets. You know, you didn't discipline, discipline me enough or you were too strict or uh, whatever. You know, it's one thing or another. Sometimes we blame school teachers. If that school teacher had done a better job or prepared me better or hadn't been mean to me or had liked me or whatever that may be, you think, well, my life would have turned out differently. Sometimes we blame our failures on the bullies in school, the people that uh, tortured us in school and caused us to have these emotional problems that we have today. Sometimes we blame our spouse. There's all kind of things and people that we blame. But in reality, the biggest target for us blaming our failures and our unanswered prayers and our dreams that were never met is that we blame God. We blame God for those things. Why not? You know, you figure it this way. Um, It only seems right to blame God. If the power lies with this person, God, to straighten out my life, to protect me, to, to provide for me, then why not blame him? When things don't turn out right, when I don't achieve the goals, when I don't experience the things that I want in life, then why not blame them? That only seems logical. And so we do. We become bitter. We get mad at God. We are disappointed and all of these things. But here's what happens. We still come to church. and We put on our happy face because we don't want anybody to know that deep down in our hearts we are bitter and angry at God because of something that didn't occur in my life that I wanted to happen, or something that did occur that I don't like. And a lot of Christians are mad at God, a lot of them, and they don't always tell you that. See, the problem has, has developed that, uh, that is this, that for many of us as believers, our spiritual walk with God has begun to depend on circumstances. In other words, if life is good, then I'm doing okay spiritually. If I don't have any problems, if things are going well, then I am okay with God. And I can praise God and I can worship God and, you know, things are great and we're just spiritually on fire. But what happens when that doesn't occur? What happens when things don't work out? What are we supposed to do when life falls apart? What are we supposed to do then? 
Now today what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to spend a little time and try to answer that question. I want to leave you as you leave here today with a little better understanding of why things like that happen and what faith is and, and going kind of taking you in that direction. I'm not going to answer all your questions because I don't have the answers to all of your questions. But what I hope to do is give you a new perspective. Maybe that you look at things differently, look at life differently, maybe even look at God differently. And hopefully that will help you. Hopefully. We'll see. But I want to begin, we're going to be looking in the Old Testament today. And I want to just say this at the beginning because people always question, you know, anything out of the Old Testament and its relevance to us today and uh, this is that boring history again and stuff like that. But I want you to listen to this verse. Paul in the New Testament made this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Now, you're going to need to listen good as I read these passages. We've got a little bit of Scripture we're going to be looking at today. And since we don't have the projector, and I'm guessing 9 out of 10 of you didn't bring your Bibles because I've spoiled you with this projection, um, I want you to listen, okay? As I read it, I want you to listen to what's being said. But this is what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. He says, talking about the history of Israel and things that he was talking about there in chapter 10. He says, now these things occurred as examples to help us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And he's talking about all the things in the Old Testament that he's teaching these people. And he's saying, now I'm telling you these things because, he said, they happened to them, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And they serve as examples for you and me so that we don't make the same mistakes. Now keep that in mind as we begin to look through these passages of Scripture, okay? Now, the setting for this text that I'm going to be taking you to today it has to do with the time of the Exodus, when they were leaving Egypt, when God had built the nation in bondage there in Egypt, and they'd grown to millions, several million people. Leads them out under the leadership of Moses into the desert, and Egypt is behind them. It's all over. They're no longer slaves in Egypt, and now God has plans for them, and he's going to teach them his law, give them his law, and he takes about two years to do that there in the desert. Teaches them how, you know, what the tabernacle is and how to build it. And it was basically just a tent until they, until the time of Solomon when it was finally made in brick and mortar and became the temple. But just a temporary place of worship. And giving them the law and all of these things. And, and then I'm going to take you up to the promised land and you can go into the promised land and be victorious and conquer it and all the blessings that I have in store for you. And as you know, what happened was they went up to the promised land and they, backed out they said we're not going in they're giants and we'll die there we're not going to do it so they they backed out and god said that's fine then for the next 38 years you can wander in the desert and everyone from the age of 20 or older will die in the desert here until your children have grown and their children and i will take them into the land and that's exactly what he did. But our story is talking today about their experience in the wilderness during that 40 years total wandering. Now, let me begin because I want to read a passage to you. You're going to have to listen, okay? I'm just going to read it. It's about eight verses. And it explains the life, the day-to-day -day life that the Jews were experiencing there in the wilderness while they were waiting. 
So now, <clears throat> at the end of this, when I'm finished, I'm just going to ask you to share with me. What do you feel? I want to know what you feel as you try to f- picture the Jews going through these experiences on a day-to-day basis. As I read this, you'll, it'll become apparent because just the way in which it's written conveys something. So listen carefully, okay? So Numbers chapter 9, we're looking at verses 15 through 23. Here's what it says. It says, On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. Now the cloud is the presence of God. Descended down on the tabernacle and there he dwelt. And when the cloud, the presence of God, moved, then the Israelites had to pick up, take down the tabernacle and all this stuff, gather it together and take off and follow him. He was leading them. And so when the cloud covered it, um, from evening until morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Now listen carefully to this, okay? Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. And as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, The Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle for only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp. And then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed over only uh, from evening till morning. And when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. And when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with the command through Moses. All right. Now you talk to me. One word explanation. How does he, how do you feel after reading that? Put yourself in their place. What do you what's your one word word that would capture what you feel after reading that? Come on, speak up. Anybody? Tired. Yeah. What? Obedience, okay. I think of boredom. I think of absolute monotony. I think of give me a gun, let me kill myself. All they did for 40 years was wander, and it was 40 years of going nowhere. Absolute worst life you could possibly be living. Aimless. No goals. No direction. Nothing. When the cloud moved, you moved. You had to take down everything again, the entire tabernacle and all of the ways in which it was to be done, everything. It was a pure nightmare to have to get up and move. But God would move them here. He would move them there. He'd move them there. He'd move them back here. All over the wilderness for 40 years. And every day, approximately 150 to 200 people died in order to have that many people die within 40 years. 
It was unbelievable. It was a horrible time. Now think about this. If you're a young man of 20 years old who is going to be in going into the promised land, you would have been 60 by the time that took place. Your entire life is gone, practically. 40 years of your life down the tubes. And you think to yourself, now wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? That I have given my whole life to this wandering around. Is that fair? You know, what is God doing? How could God have done this to me? My entire young adult life is spent wandering, aimlessly doing nothing, going nowhere in the wilderness. And let me tell you something. For 40 years, they complained. Every single day. If I was Moses, I would have committed suicide. I mean, it's that bad. I don't know how he put up with it. But they complained. They complained about the weather. They complained about everything. They complained about not having enough water. They complained about food. Let me read you again now a different account of something. This is the account of when they were complaining about food and getting tired of eating the manna that God gave them every day. Now, this will all make sense in a minute, but it's important that you understand this story. So listen carefully, okay? In Numbers chapter 11, I want to look at verses 4 through 6. Here's what it says. It says, The rabble with them, the people that were complaining, began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing. (laughs) Wailing, baby. They are mad. It says, If only we had meat to eat. We remember, now get this, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers and the melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. It's all we ever see day after day. Manna for 40 years. Like eating cardboard with sugar on it. How can we do this? And they begin to think, you know, boy, man, when we were in Egypt and we had fish and beef. And lamb, man, it makes your mouth water just thinking about it. Put that thing on a smoker, man. All the leeks and the garlics and the spices of Egypt. And you know what? It didn't cost us a thing because you know who paid for it? Our masters. Let alone the fact that we were in bondage as slaves. That that didn't matter. It was free food and it was good. Man, I would rather be back there than I would to be here. Because basically that's what they're saying. I would rather be back in bondage and have the food that I want and the comfort that I want than to be out here following after God. I'd rather do that. So God talks to Moses, and Moses is praying and asking God what to do. And now in verse 18, here's what he says. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed and said, if only we had meat to eat, we are we were better off in Egypt. So now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. Now, can you just imagine how excited they are? Oh, my gosh. He's going to give us meat. It worked. We're going to get it. And I'm sure they got the grills out and put the charcoal in, had those babies fired up and said, bring it on. Because I'm ready for it. All they were lacking was some good rub and some good barbecue sauce. They didn't have that. But, man, it didn't matter. They were going to eat whatever God brought them. And so in the next verse, he says, you will 
You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month. And you're going to eat it until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. You hate it. Why? Well, here, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Now, God is hacked. You know, he's he's ticked at this. Because basically what they're saying is, God, we were in bondage and you were nowhere to be found and we were happier there eating tasty food than we are here eating manna and you leading and guiding us throughout the wilderness and being bored to tears. We were happier back there, in all honesty. Man, how many times Christians have thought the same thing? You know, before I became a Christian, life was, I was, I was happy, man. I, I had the world by the tail and everything seemed to work out. Ever since the day I came to Christ, it's been nothing but difficulty. It's been hard. It's been hard and there have been losses in my life and sometimes it hasn't been good. And sometimes I wonder if I wouldn't have been better off just staying in ignorance. You know, God doesn't mind questions and he doesn't mind honest doubt. But here's what God does not like, and this is true of all of us today. God doesn't like it when we complain about what he's doing in our lives and we think, and we say to him, we think we have a better plan and we know better. And you shouldn't have done that, God. God, you shouldn't have taken my spouse. God, I shouldn't have lost that job. God, I, I shouldn't have lost that money. God, my, my children shouldn't be sick. And all of the things that we throw up back at God and say, God, I would have been better off without you. That's basically what we're saying. I would have been better off if you could have just stayed out of it and left me alone. You see, that's the thing that God doesn't like. God gave them meat. Listen to what happened. Verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scat- it's the wind it scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. Now, you've got to picture this, okay? You've got to understand what's happening. Uh, now, what I think is the, what is transpiring is this. Out over the ocean, God gathered the wind and gathered the quail and blew them into camp. They didn't just fly. He said he blew them. It, the wind, carried them into camp and probably kills them right there. They just, uh, with the wind, they just die right there. They're falling from the sky. The camp, now remember, the several million people, this thing is huge. And he says they are piled up uh, a, a three feet deep is what he says. Two cubits, 18 inches, three feet deep. Three feet deep for as far as a man can walk in a day. I don't know how far that is, 10, 15, 20 miles. I don't have a clue. But, folks, we're talking a lot of quail. And those people, I can just imagine, are running around as excited as they can be. They're plucking those things. They're boiling them. They're charcoaling them. They're they're pan frying. They're, they're doing everything they can, man. We've got to preserve it so they probably are smoking a lot of the meat and all of this. It says in the next verse, it says, All of that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. That's a measurement. 
It says, and then they spread them out all around the camp. They are just picking them up left and right. Do you know how much weight 10 homers is? One and a half tons. Each person gathered one and a half tons of quail. For two days, they picked these things up and piled them up and plucked them and, and ate them. And God said, you're going you're gonna to eat it for a month. This is all you're getting. In the next verse, in verse 33, it says, But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people. And he struck them with a severe plague. Now, I, that's all it says. We don't know what the plague was. Probably dysentery, vomiting, sick of the meat. They're getting sick as dogs eating the stuff until they finally came to the point where they just hated it, didn't want any more of it. Man, I look at that and I think to myself, my goodness. You know, I, I look at it, and I'm sure you do too. All these people wanted was some meat. What was the big sin? All they wanted was something different than manna. All they wanted was something with a little more nutrition maybe or something that tasted better. I mean, good grief just to give them meat. So he did. And he did it in such a way that was seemed so harsh. Man, that seems harsh, doesn't it? But now you find out why. Now watch, because this is the last last passage right here. Forty years are over. They come up to the promised land, and Moses looks into the promised land, and he addresses the people, and he, he tells them you know, to obey the Lord and walk with him. And he doesn't get to go in. That's a whole other story, but he doesn't go in. He dies there. Joshua leads them in. But here's Moses' words to the people now. Forty years later, when all of this is over, listen to what he says. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, these three verses will be the last, okay? He says, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to give your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Now think about this, okay? We just read what it was like. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness for these 40 years. Now watch. To humble and test you. Now he's telling you why he did what he did. In order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. Okay, now wait a minute. Okay, God, you let them, you just picked them up and moved them every day or every week or every month. You just, you know, one location to the next. All they had to do was pile all this stuff up and go monotonous and boring and all. You, you did that and, and then you fed them manna and you wouldn't let them have meat. You wouldn't do anything else because you wanted to humble them and to see whether or not they would be obedient to you before you ever took them into the land. Because you see, God knew that when you go into this land, there are going to be people that are bigger than you, stronger than you, and mightier than you. And if you don't obey me, you're going to get killed. And so you walk with me in obedience and trust me. And you're going to learn that for these next 40 years of schooling. And I'm going to humble you in such a way that you will no longer Hold your fist up to me and say that I'm unfair. 
I'm going to humble you and bring you down for that. And so this is what he did. The next verse says this. He says in verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, with which you nor your ancestors had known. Now here again, he tells you something. He humbled you and he fed you manna and he caused you to be hungry to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is the crux of the whole thing right here. I'm going to teach you that man does not live by bread alone. But what man lives on, and the most important thing, and this is the lesson you and I have got to learn, that man lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what he's saying is this. In the King James, the word, um, the word, the word where it says every word is really the decrees. He says every decree that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, what God has decreed for you at this time in your life, God is saying to you, that's what you need to live on. It's not about food. It's not about security. It's not about happiness. It's not about your health. It's not about family members living or dying. And none of that. He says the only thing that matters to man, this is the most important lesson you'll ever learn, that you and I learn to stand on what God has said is he has decreed for me and to be content with that. To accept that, to be humbled, to don't accuse him, to don't raise your fist at him, but to say, God, as much as I hate this, I will accept it because it came from you. One of the hardest lessons you and I will ever have to learn, and we still struggle with this. We do. We struggle with it because you see, to us, it's all about circumstances. To us, it's all about what you're eating and enjoying and the pleasures of life. That's what makes life worth living. And when that happens, we're okay with God. But you let God take a child. You let God give you cancer. You let God do something else in your life or allow these things to happen, ever how you want to look at it. You let that come into your life and you'll raise your fist to God. You'll say, wait a minute, God. I know better. I know better. And I'm not going to stand for this. And God says, this is why I do the things I do. To teach you that you have to humble yourself before me. Three applications, very quickly, in the time we have remaining. All I'm going to do is just breeze through them. Here's the first thing that I want you to learn from this. And that is this, that sometimes God has to break you in order to reshape you. God has to break you in order to reshape you. You see, that's what he was doing with the nation of Israel. I'm going to take you down to humble you in order to restore you and bring you back up the way I want it to be. Sometimes God has to knock you to your feet, knock you to your knees, take you down in order to get our attention, in order to bring us back up in the way that he wants us to be. How many times have I heard testimonies of somebody who is giving testimony and praising God for the horrible things that have happened in life because somehow God through His Holy Spirit worked through that situation 
and I am stronger and better and closer to the Lord than I've ever been because God reshaped me through that. Here's the second application, and that is this, that you have to believe that God knows best even if you don't understand. You have to believe. This is where faith comes in. See, we all talk about having faith in God. This is part of it. Faith is not just saying, okay, I'm I'm just believing, believing, believing that everything's going to work out okay. It might not. You've got to come to the conclusion that it's okay and that I believe that God knows what is best even if I don't understand what's happening. And I've got to believe that and have faith in Him. Okay, God, take me through the wilderness here for 40 years and I'll eat manna if that's what you say because I believe you know what's best for me. Whatever happens in my life, oh God, as much as it hurts, I believe that it's best for me because you said it is. I'll trust you. I'll trust you. If we don't, then we're only going to be like the Israelites. Always back and forth and up and down spiritually. Never satisfied. Here's the third thing that I want you to learn from this, and that is that you have to believe that the only thing you need is what God gives you. You have to be convinced of that. You have to believe and come to the realization that the only thing that you really need in life is what God gives you. See, everybody has dreams. We all do. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we take those dreams, like the Bible says, to bring your request to me. And there are times when God graciously grants us those prayers and God moves. Then there are times where it seems like God is just about as far away from us as he can get. It seems like the more I pray and ask and it doesn't happen, and at those times when nothing else is going to work, you've tried it all, you have to come to the conclusion that, you know what, God is God. I don't understand, but the only thing that I need is what he has decreed for me to have. Paul understood this, you see, because Paul said this. He said, I have learned. I have learned to be content. In whatever situation I find myself, I have learned to be satisfied with what God gives me. Guys, man does not live by bread alone, those things of life. Man lives by what God has given him, what he's decreed for him. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what you're going through, and I don't know what pain you may be suffering. But I know this, that God hasn't abandoned you. I know that God is still there and that God God has his hand in that situation. And so here you and I are now. We are at a crossroad because whatever that situation is, you and I have got to make a decision. Am I going to trust you through this, even if it means wandering in the desert? Or am I going to buck up and, and become obstinate and accuse you of not loving me? even though sometimes that's what it feels like? Or am I going to stand on the promises of God that I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you? And you are the apple of my eye. But you have to trust me in this, okay? You have to trust me. That, guys, that's what God wants. He wants you to trust him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here this morning, Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for loving us. I thank you 
Father, that you have our best interest at heart, even though sometimes we doubt that. I thank you for forgiving us, Lord, of of our hard-heartedness and our rebellion and being patient with us. And Lord, we realize that part of growing is being humbled. Part of growing is learning to trust you when things are difficult. And Lord, I speak for myself and I pray for, for all of these that are here this morning that we would learn that, myself included. God, I want to learn to trust you. And I know that might mean going through some difficult times. But Father, that's what you have said. That's all I need. All I need is you. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name.